0: If certain heresies and teachings are allowed to go unchecked in the church, the truth will be lost to the next generation and the unbelievers will not even be able to become believers.
1: Welcome to Grace and Truth Radio, a ministry of Harvest Bible Church, verse-by-verse Bible teaching with Pastor Dan McGee. I'm Barbara Hannum. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pastor Dan is leading us through the book of Acts in a series titled, The Gospel Unleashed. Today we'll be listening to the first part of a message, the most important question of all. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15.
0: This morning, the message is entitled The Most Important Question of All. The most important question of all. Now, I want you to think about that. There are some important questions in the world, right? I can think of a few. Can you? Like, if I get on this airplane, is it going to crash? That's a pretty important question. Wouldn't you agree? Amen. Amen. (laughs) That's a good question. Is this thing going to make it to the other side? I want to know. That's an important question. There are lots of important questions, but I believe Acts 15 deals with the most important question of all. And that question is this. You might want to write this down. Here it is. What must I do to be saved? That's the question. That's what Acts 15 is all about, really. It's dealing with this question. What must I do to be saved? Why is that the most important question? Because the answer to that question has the most important consequence. Doesn't it? The answer to that question produces, for those who understand the right answer, the greatest result. Salvation. Forgiveness of sins, eternal life. Yeah, where will I spend eternity? I mean, when I take my last breath, what happens to me? Where does my soul go? What must I do to be saved? That's what's dealt with here in Acts chapter 15. at something that is known as the Jerusalem Council. You see, up to this point... As you'll recall, Barnabas and Paul had been sent from a church in a city called Antioch. In fact, let me put this uh, slide up on the screen for you. It's got our map that we've looked at a bunch of times over the last uh, several months actually because this is the map of Paul's first missionary journey. He and Barnabas left from a church that was located in the city of Antioch. That's in what is known as Asia Minor. From there, they went down Seleucia, they got on a ship, they sailed across the Salamis over here to the island of Cyprus. And from there, they began to evangelize on the island of Cyprus. They went to Paphos, which is the capital city there on the island of Cyprus. From there, they traveled north. They went to a city named Atalia there, to Perga, up to another city that's known as Antioch, not the same, obviously. It's called Antioch Pisidian. From there down to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and then they retraced their steps back through those cities again, and they ended up sailing then from Atalia back over to their home city of Antioch where they had originally left. Now notice, you're in chapter 15, but look with me uh, in chapter 14. Look at verse 27 for a moment. It says, When they arrived and they gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Now can't you imagine, church, what it must have been like when Barnabas and Paul arrived back at their home church, the church of Antioch? Imagine the stories, the tales that they could tell. Of the things that they had seen God do, and the people that had been saved and converted, and how the gospel now had gone forward to the Gentiles in a powerful way. Can you imagine Paul telling the story of the interaction that he must have had with that sorcerer, who was basically the right-hand man with the governor of the city of Cyprus? Remember that incident. I can I could just imagine in my mind sitting there as Paul is telling the church in Antioch this story and how the the gospel had overcome, and yet the governor still had had become a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, just think of the tales, and it was such a wonderful, wonderful reunion for Paul and Barnabas with this church. God's grace had been so abundant to them, hadn't it? He had sustained Paul even through a sickness. They had endured dangers along the way, but many lives had been changed. You know, when this happens, Satan is not happy, is he, church? When the gospel is going forward and when it's being proclaimed and lives are being transformed, there will be an inevitable satanic attack that follows. Why? Because, as we've said before, we are in a battle, we're in a struggle. And that's what we find here in Acts chapter 15 the peace is broken. Look at verse 1. So here's Paul and Barnabas and they're in, the, they're in the church in the city of Antioch and notice what happens there. It says, But some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers. Well, what were they teaching? They were teaching this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these individuals who came down, notice it says from Judea, And we'll see this a little bit later in the story. They came down telling people, listen, telling people in the church of Antioch that they came under the authority of the church and the apostles back in Jerusalem. This is a very important detail. When they arrived in Antioch, they came claiming to have apostolic authority. But they came carrying a message that is not Right. They started telling the brothers and the sisters there in the church of Antioch, which was made up of primarily Gentiles, they said to them, you can't be saved unless you are circumcised. What was the main issue here? The main issue was that they were trying to add works to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They were saying that there was something more that you had to do besides believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, would you take your Bible and hold your page here for a moment, but I want us to turn to a very important and well-known to most of you, some of you this may be new, but go with me to the book of Ephesians for a moment, okay? We're going to come right back to Acts, but hold your page there, go to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, we find the Apostle Paul gives very clear direction regarding the matter of salvation, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we do not have to add any sort of work to the salvation that Christ freely offers. Now you'll notice in just a moment, you'll notice that Paul does deal with the matter of works, but you'll also see that that matter is dealt with subsequent to salvation. In other words, after salvation takes place, the believer is then to serve the Lord and to do good works, but, listen, not to get saved, but because you are saved. So you serve the Lord not as a way of gaining the gift of salvation, but as a way of showing your gratitude Because you have been given the gift of salvation. Look at verse 8, Ephesians 2, it says, For by grace you have been saved through what, church? Through faith. Through faith. Faith in who? Faith in Jesus Christ the Son of God, who came, who lived, who died. He was, he was buried. He rose again the third day. We place our faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice it says, it says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, it says there, not a result of what? Works, so that no one can boast. There is no amount of work that you and I can do to secure our salvation. It is solely through our faith in Jesus Christ, the shed blood of Christ, his work of redemption on Calvary's cross for you. Now, notice verse 10, though. Paul does talk about works, but it's after salvation. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we'll also talk about this a little more towards the end of the message, but once a person gets saved, does that mean that now you can just go and live any way that you want to live? And you can essentially say, thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation that you've given to me, but now that you've saved me, you have no claim on my life, and I'm going to go live the way that I really want to live, I've I've been given the fire escape out of hell, I've been forgiven of my sin, and and now because I've trusted Christ by faith through grace, but now I'm just going to go live the way that I want to live. Is that what the Scripture teaches, church? Absolutely not. Because the Scripture does tell us clearly, and we see that in verse 10, that once a person receives Jesus Christ as Savior, God does have a plan for your life. He has some good works that he has prepared for you beforehand that you ought to be doing them. Amen. Amen. And so the believer who trusts Christ as Savior but then goes off and says, well, now I've, I've been saved, but I don't, I don't have to serve Jesus. I don't have to obey Jesus. In fact, I can go through the Bible and I can pick and choose those commands that I want to obey, that's not the heart of a true follower of Christ. The heart of a true follower of Christ says, I want to follow and obey my new master. You see, our old master was what? Sin. Sin had mastery over us. We followed our natural sinful inclinations. We did whatever sin dragged us into. We just did it. But now we have a new master, Jesus, and the scripture says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So we follow now the Lord and we do that, but let's go back to Acts chapter 15 because the question here was, but what do I need to do to be saved? This is the most important question of all. Notice with me verse 2, because these guys come down, these Judaizers as they're called, and they claim to be sent with the authority of the apostles back in Jerusalem. And they're telling people now, essentially, they're saying you have to perform this Jewish rite. Yes, we know you're Gentiles. But we're saying to you, you have to perform this Jewish rite of circumcision first before you can become a follower of Jesus. So what they were doing is they were adding something to salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And uh, notice what happens in verse 2. It says, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Now can you imagine this? Do you notice how the scripture describes that? It's it's like saying it was a really big fight. It was no small dissension and debate. Paul and Barnabas were the primary shepherds of the flock in Antioch, weren't they? They had had spent years discipling the people here. They had poured their lives and taught them the word of God and all of a sudden, along come these men saying, well, look, you, you have to do this before you can truly be a Christian. And Paul and Barnabas are like, hold on a second, that's just not true. There was no small dissension and debate. Here's the first main thought that I want to share with you that's on your outline there this morning. Here it is. Number one. As I read this this week, I thought about this and I wrote this down. Number one, conflict seems to be inevitable in order to keep the doctrine of the church pure. Isn't that true, church? This is kind of, can I say this? This is one of those really harsh realities that you just have to face it We don't like it, but conflict does seem to be inevitable in order to keep the doctrine of the church pure. Why? Because Satan never rests with his attacks upon the church. He seeks to destroy the church in multiple different ways, and one of them, one of them, is through bringing false, erroneous doctrine into the church. Because if he can ultimately bring false doctrine into Christ's church, he has the victory by damning souls to hell. Paul and Barnabas, notice, listen, and this is really important, Paul and Barnabas, they were not looking for a conflict. They had just come back to the church at Antioch with great news. They were sharing the stories of what Christ had done, and yet here comes people bringing false doctrine into this church. Heresy came knocking, and they had no choice but to debate it, but to deal with it. Listen. Would you just write this down for a moment? And I I hope you'll remember this always, okay? Would you, underneath that point, just write this little phrase down? Here it is, okay? Good shepherds protect their flock. Good shepherds protect their flock. That's what Paul will later say at the very end of the book of Acts. We'll see it when we get there eventually in Acts chapter 28. You know what he's going to say to the elders in the church at Ephesus? He will say these words, Guard the flock of God over which Christ has made you overseers. Guard that flock. The idea of the shepherd, obviously, there is the shepherd protects the sheep. He knows that there are ravenous wolves who will try to come into the flock and destroy the flock. And so the shepherd is willing to give his life for the sheep if necessary. But I want to tell you, church, the fight for truth is not for the faint of heart. It is not. It requires us to earnestly contend for the faith. In fact, look at this verse. Um, would you go to the next verse there? Jude chapter one, Jude one, please. Actually, it's Jude. It's only one chapter, but it's verses three and four. Let's turn there together for just a moment. Would you do that with me, please? All the way to the back of your Bible. In fact, it's the very last little book right before Revelation. Okay, so if you find Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, just flip a few pages forward and you'll find this little book called Jude. It's only one chapter long. In fact, it's only 25 verses long. Now notice verse 3 of this little book called Jude. It says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you. Here it is. You may want to actually underline this little phrase. Appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see that? So he's being told here, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Well, here's the answer. Look at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So even there in this little epistle of Jude, we find this warning here that we have to earnestly contend for the faith. But let's be honest, it's not easy to do that, is it? In fact, I don't know about you, maybe you've, you've heard a few of these um, reasons, or I tend to call them excuses for not being willing to contend for the faith. In fact, I've, <laughs> I've thought a few of them myself over the years as we've been in situations where we've had to do that. Maybe you've heard these same excuses for not contending for the faith. Here's one. Let me put this on the screen for you. Have you ever heard this before? Well, that's not loving. We're supposed to love each other. Well, that's not loving. And I understand that. I I do. I get that. I understand the desire that we all have to be able to show love for one another. And we ought to do that, church. Amen? We ought to do that. Because we love each other and we love the Lord. But let's also remember in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, where we are reminded of Peter's words where he said, We ought to obey God rather than man. I want you to go with me to John chapter 12 for a moment. John 12, if you would find verse 41. Now, what's happening here contextually is that the Lord Jesus has been speaking. And um, as he's been speaking, he's been calling on people to believe in himself as the one promised by the prophet Isaiah, as the Messiah. And notice what it says in verse 41. As as Christ is preached, it says that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, notice, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. So, So look at me just for a minute. As Christ is declaring himself to be the Messiah promised by the prophet Isaiah, the scripture says that people believed, but notice, Even some of the authorities believed in him. People of high rank, high standing in the community, in the temple. These people, it says, they believed in Christ as the promised Messiah. But then notice the next phrase. You see it in the middle of verse 42? But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Now, here's the reason why. Verse 43, listen to this. What an indictment this is. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, look, look. Dear church, may that by God's grace never be said of any of us that we loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, when, when truth is at stake, the example that is set for us consistently by the apostles throughout Scripture is that we must be willing to contend for the faith. And that means there are going to be times when doing that could be interpreted by others as being unloving. And when that accusation comes, here's all you can do. Check your motive. Make sure your heart is right with the Lord. Love as much as you can and are able to by God's grace and in his spirit, but you must not allow this excuse that people often want to offer as a reason to not earnestly contend for the faith. I can imagine in the church at Antioch there must have been some people when Paul and Barnabas got up in the faces of these Judaizers, when they started earnestly contending with them and debating with them, no doubt there were some people in that church that were like, oh, Paul, stop, stop, this is not loving. Please, you you shouldn't talk like this, Paul. But Paul had to protect the sheep. It was his responsibility to do that. Here's the second excuse. Maybe you've, you've heard this or maybe you've even thought this. And that is, well, I just, I just don't like conflict. And conflict, conflict is a bad testimony to unbelievers. Can't we all just get along? It's such a bad testimony to unbelievers. Well, here's the problem with that, okay? The problem with that is this. If certain heresies and teachings are allowed to go unchecked in the church, the truth will be lost to the next generation and the unbelievers will not even be able to become believers. Because the truth gets lost. Inevitably, there is going to be a battle when truth is at stake and we have to contend for it. Welcome to the crowd if you think test that conflict is bad and that we all should just get along. I understand that. I really do. I don't like conflict either. Hello, Grace and Truth listeners. We hope that you've been encouraged and blessed by the program today. If you'd like to purchase the entire series of messages that you've been hearing, visit our website graceandtruthradio.net and click on the online store tab. There you'll find this message series as well as many other message series that we've produced here at Grace and Truth Radio. Once again, that's graceandtruthradio.net. Thanks for joining us today on Grace and Truth Radio. I'm so glad that you've been with us. If you're looking for a church, I'd like to invite you to join us. Harvest is a growing, dynamic, multicultural church that welcomes people from all backgrounds, all cultures, and all walks of life. We are passionate Christ followers, and if that resonates with you, come check us out. You can get a copy of this series of messages if you go
1: to our website, graceandtruthradio.com. Or you can call us at 1-877-64-TRUTH. And of course, Grace and Truth Radio is sponsored by Harvest Bible Church and listeners like you. Check out our website at harvestdetroitwest.org. I hope you'll come to visit us this Sunday at one of our three service times, 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. Harvest is located on Newburgh Road, just north of Ford Road. We hope to see you there.
0: i mm-hmm.